Well, we're in this short series from the, the book of Proverbs, and even though it's an old book written centuries ago, it's uh, full of wonderful wisdom for life, isn't it? We need wisdom because many of the decisions we face in life are not found in any rule book or moral code, are they? Just think about it for a moment. What work should I do? Who should I marry? Should I challenge that person or not? Should I speak up or remain silent? There are no obvious right or wrong answers to those questions. We really do need wisdom for those questions, don't we? And Proverbs tells us that wisdom is the capacity to understand life and to live it well. Wisdom is the capacity to understand life and live it well. And to live life well, to live it successfully in this world, begins with fearing the Lord. So right up front in Proverbs chapter 1, we read, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it's a principle that's repeated right through the book. And it's telling us that even that we can't begin to function well as human beings unless we're rightly related to the Creator God. That's the first and key principle of a successful life because this is God's world and he made it. And if we're to live well and wisely in his world, we need to know him. That's where wisdom begins. It begins with knowing our creator God. And today we come to a really important topic, the topic of wisdom and sexuality. Love and sex are really powerful forces, aren't they? And they have great potential to mess up our lives unless you handle them well. And it's such an important topic uh, that the book of Proverbs actually has a lot to say about it. Chapter 5, half of chapter 6, all of chapter 7 deal with this subject. Almost a third of the material in chapters 1 to 9 are to do with sexuality. Why is that? Well, notice in these opening chapters you have a father talking to his son. And the Bible teaches that it's, <clears throat> teaches that it's a responsibility of parents to teach their children about sex. The home is a far better context for sex education than the internet or the schoolyard or a magazine or the school classroom for that matter. And here in the early chapters of Proverbs we have a father training his son in life. And sex is a fundamental part of life. It's a basic and powerful instinct. And by the way this is not just for young people uh, with their hormones racing, it's equally applicable to old people. Sex is on everyone's mind, isn't it? And what Proverbs teaches us is how to handle our sexuality the way God intended us for human flourishing. Now, over the last couple of decades, we've seen significant shifts, massive shifts in our culture away from the Bible's teaching on sex. I, want to, I can't address all these issues in this talk today <clears throat> that are thrown up by these shifts, such as gay marriage or trans, the transgender trend. They're important areas for Christians for us all to think about and lovingly consider. But today I want to focus on some basic Christian teaching on sexuality. And the first thing the Proverbs tell us is that sex is a wonderful gift. Sex is a wonderful gift. Back in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God made the heavens above, the earth below and the sea beneath. And on the sixth day, he made a male and female, man and woman. And what did he tell them? He told them to go and be fruitful and multiply. The first commandment given to the human race is to have sex and plenty of it. 
So it's totally inappropriate, isn't it, for us to be uh, prudish or embarrassed about this particular topic. The Bible is not. Sex is a gift of God to enjoy. So turn with me to that last section that Gary read, Proverbs 30. Well, it's on the screen, uh, verse 18 and 19. It's actually a beautiful poem. Listen to it again. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. Picture an eagle in the sky. I think there's a picture on the screen there. Soaring effortly on the air currents, perfectly at home in the skies. It's actually a wonderful, awe-inspiring sight, isn't it? And on our bushwalks, Ingrid and I have seen many, many snakes, and it's amazing how they move, isn't it? So effortly, effortlessly over sort of rough, rocky ground. And then the writer pictures a ship on the high seas with the wind in its sails, cutting smoothly through the waters. And by starting this poem with the words, there are three things, no four, he's emphasising the fourth thing. What's the fourth thing? The way of a man with a young maiden. It's a man and a woman enjoying sex. It's natural, it's instinctive, it's effortless and awesome, like a bird soaring in the heaven, like a snake moving over rock, like a ship gliding through water. That's a man and woman in the act of making love. God made us sexual beings and sex is a good gift to enjoy. But wisdom says it's to be enjoyed within marriage. Turn with me to Proverbs 5, verse 15 and 19. Again, this is beautiful poetry it's, and it's quite erotic. It's not... Uh, the words someone who, uh, of someone who's sexually repressed. Listen to the words again, Five, chapter 5, verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. The imagery is quite obvious, isn't it? It's almost too hot to handle, really. The cistern, of course, is a symbol of female sexuality. You have to enter a cistern to go down into the well and get water. And the fountain is a, ma a symbol of male sexuality, the water that sort of spurts out. It's a, an erotic poem, a bit like the Old Testament Song of Songs. May her breast satisfy you always. May you be ever intoxicated by her love. Sex is an exhilarating experience. But notice the context. It's within the covenant of marriage. It's your own system, your own well. It's the wife of your youth, never to be shared with strangers. Notice that in that passage. And it's wonderful to see, isn't it, when husbands and wives are obviously in love with each other after many years of marriage and the chemistry is still there. Sex is God's good gift to be enjoyed in marriage. And, you know, in fact, researchers tell us that married couples have happier, healthier relationships and better sex than cohabitating couples. That's what the book of Proverbs is saying. Sex is a great gift of God. It's to be celebrated and enjoyed in the context of a committed, loving marriage relationship. But notice... There is also a prohibition, isn't there, in these verses against promiscuous sex. Chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. Should your springs overflow in the streets, 
your streams in the public square. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. And the second thing that the Proverbs tell us is that our human sexuality has been distorted in this fallen, broken world. And we undervalue, undervalue sex, don't we, by turning it into a commodity. Look back over that beautiful poem in chapter 30. The soaring eagle, slithering snake, ship on the high sea, most beautiful and awesome of all the way of a man with a young woman. But now look at the next verse, verse 20. This is the way of the adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. And you can replace woman with man, that's okay. This is a book for young men to be guided, so I understand that. But it's a jarring sentence, isn't it? It's shocking contrast to the imagery that is good and right and beautiful. It's a picture of illicit sex. Sex is undervalued. Sex is just a commodity. It's like eating, like appetite. I'm hungry, I'll eat. I desire you, I'll have sex. What's wrong with that? That's our culture. We see that everywhere today, don't we? Sex is a commodity. Sex is a transaction. We see that in movies, Netflix, on social media. Eat, wipe your mouth. I've done nothing wrong. Don't believe the lie our culture pushes that it's okay. It's destroying something beautiful. It's damaging your soul. God's word tells us over and over again, don't turn sex into a commodity. Don't separate sex from commitment. That's what the father is teaching his son here. Look at the words from Proverbs 6, verse 23. My instructions are the way to life, keeping you from your neighbor's wife, from the smooth talk of a wayward woman. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. For a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife preys on your very life. See how strongly the Proverbs put it? Prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread. You're just a means for in of income to her. An adulterer preys on your very life. She cheats on her husband. She rejects God's wisdom and commands. And she encour <clears throat> encourages you to do the same. Illicit sex cheapens sex. It's sex as groceries. It's self-gratification rather than self-giving. Young people, ask yourself, what kind of a relationship am I getting into? Why are you going out with that person? Is it commitment thing or is it a consumer thing? Are you in a sexual relationship outside of marriage? If you're even thinking about it, by the way, this is not just for young people, it's for all of us because we're all swimming in this permissive culture at the moment, aren't we? Sexualized culture. If you're even thinking about it, let me say to you, to have sex with someone else's, someone you're not married to, is a consumer thing. You haven't given yourself to him or to her. You haven't received the other person. There's no commitment, no giving of self. You're saying to the other person, I just want the pleasure you give me. I don't want you. That's cheapening and devaluing sex, isn't it? Experts have interviewed thousands of people to find out whether having lots of sexual relationships has made them happy. And it turns out, in general, it doesn't. Having sexual relationships with lots of people tends to make you less happy. But commit yourself to another person in an unconditional marriage covenant. You will soar like an eagle. It makes both men and women happier. Sex won't be like sort of eating lollies. You know, it might feel good in the moment, but the after effects are often miserable. No, it'll be exciting. It will be meaningful. It will be self-giving. As I said, researchers tell us that married sex is the best sex. 
So don't listen to the lies of our culture. Don't turn sex into a commodity. Don't undervalue and cheapen sex. That's one way sexuality is distorted in our world. And the other way is to overvalue sex by worshipping physical beauty. That's our culture too, isn't it? It does both those things. Pick up any glossy magazine, watch any TV show, see the people, what people post of themselves on Facebook. And we worship beauty, don't we? We idolise the perfect body shape, it's, and it's so damaging, especially to young people. Turn with me to Proverbs 11, verse 22. This is a very confronting verse, this. And it's a very powerful image to make us sit up and think. It wants to hit us in the face, so to speak. Uh, chapter 11, 22. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Sounds a bit offensive, doesn't it? But it's actually brilliant. You know, we consider pigs to be sort of dirty animals, and especially for the Jews, they were unclean animals. And it's meant to make you sit up and think, here's a beautiful gold ring. It's wonderful, it's shining, it's sparkling, it's attractive, and you want to take it to yourself. But it's actually attached to a pig, a pig that's been rolling in the mud and slops. If you only see the ring and don't see the pig, you'll reach for beauty and get a mess. That's what it's saying to us. Don't just look at the externals the outside. Yes, a person may be beautiful, slim, attractive. You also need to look on the inside, the character. They, they may be shallow and foolish and selfish and internally a mess. Why is this so, this is so important? Because it's a person's character that will determine what the person's life is like and what the lives of everyone around them will be like. Don't judge a book by its cover. If you make a judgment based on looks, it's like grabbing that gold ring and it may well have a hog on the end of it. Listen to how the Apostle Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So young women, don't tie your self-image to your looks, how your face looks, the shape of your body, how you dress. Peter is saying that real beauty is not on the outside. It's on the inside. It's what you do with your characters, to do with what's in your heart. Is God on the throne of your life? Do you love what he loves and hate what he hates? Do you get your significance and self-worth from him? that you are made in his image, that he loves you and has redeemed you in Christ. Do you know that he loves you? And whoever else loves you doesn't matter as much that, that, than, that he loves you. And you have him in your heart. Real beauty is on the inside, a godly character, a pure heart, a right spirit. And young men, don't make a mess of your life by reaching for that gold ring. Don't be obsessed with external beauty and pass over 80% of young ladies you're going to bump into because they don't measure up to some sort of picture you've got in your head about what a beautiful woman is supposed to look like. You'll walk past real beauty, inner beauty. You'll walk past godliness because it doesn't come in the right package as far as you're concerned. And you'll reach out for the wrong person and only pull trouble into your life. See how practical Proverbs is? Don't listen to the lies of our culture in advertising, magazines, TV, schoolyard or at the office. Don't overvalue sex by worshipping physical beauty. True beauty is inside. 
the beauty of a pure heart and a right spirit brought about by God's self-giving, redeeming love. And that's what we say to young people in the church. Marry another Christian. Sex is a wonderful gift, but it's been distorted. On the one hand, it's been undervalued and cheapened by promiscuity, and on the other hand, it's been overvalued by idolising beauty and the body. What are we to do about it? And the third thing we see in Proverbs is that our sexuality can be redeemed. Proverbs is so practical on this. It tells us to flee, to flee from sexual immorality. In chapter 7 there, you've got a long discourse. The father continues to talk to his son, and in graphic language, he actually pictures a bored young man roaming the streets with sex on his mind, drifting towards a, a woman with a reputation. And there she is waiting for him. Verse 18, and she says, Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. And then in verse 22, uh, it says, All at once he followed her like an ox to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, little knowing that it will cost him his life. That's the picture that the father paints for his son. Now look at what he says to his son, verse 25. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. In other words, turn away, flee from sexual immorality. You remember the Old Testament story of Joseph? He was uh, employed in Potiphar's house uh, as a servant. And when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, what did he do? He fled. Put distance between you and temptation. What does that mean in the context of the home? Because, you know, there's another pandemic in our society, isn't there? A pandemic people suffer with, and it's not just young people, it's the pandemic of pornography. Studies tell us that watching porn is not only addictive, it's destructive. It changes the neural pathways in your brain, damages relationships, it damages your faith. It's actually a matter of life and death. Chapter 7, verse 27 says, Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. It'll be death of your relationships with the opposite sex. Death of your marriage. You'll lose the love and respect of your children. And you'll be in danger of losing your soul. So if you're tempted to watch pornography, flee. Change the context. Move your computer to the living room. Watch what, where everyone else can see it. Install a filter. Covenant eyes, ever accountable. There's, there's lots of software out there you can install. Flee, that's the first thing to do. Run from sexual temptation and sin. And that's really what repentance is, isn't it? It's not just being sorry. Repentance is not just being sorry. It's not your heart breaking for sin. It's actually your heart breaking away from sin. It's turning away. It's fleeing in the opposite direction. And the second thing Proverb tells us to do, apart from fleeing, is to get God's word into your heart. It's there in the early chapters and over and over. Chapter 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words and store my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Down to verse 3. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Verse 5. <clears throat> they will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. See what he's saying? Let God's word, let the Proverbs parent you. This is what parents are supposed to do with their children. Teach them God's word. If your children are watching something on TV, and they shouldn't be, don't just turn it off and walk away. Talk to them about it. Years ago when our kids were teenagers, and I certainly didn't do this perfectly, but I remember on one occasion my son coming to me and pleading with me 
to let him watch a particular movie. And uh, I looked at the shorts of it and I thought, oh, this is probably a little bit too violent. But I said, OK, let's watch it together and afterwards we'll talk about it. Uh, what's good about it, what's right about it, what's bad, what's wrong about it. What would God say about it in his word? Let God's word parent your children. And then internalise it. See what it says? Store up my commands within you. Write them on the tablet of your heart. How will the word of God keep you from sexual immorality? From pornography, from adultery? Not by memorising some sort of rule. You need to take God's wisdom into your heart. You need to know. You need to believe. You need to be absolutely certain that you've been taken captive by the wrong expression of sexuality that's going to diminish and destroy you. And you need to know and to be absolutely certain that God's intention is that the best sex and intimacy is to be found in the context and commitment of a marriage covenant. You need to be certain of those things. And God promises you now a new heart. He promises to write law on your, his law on your heart so that you love what he loves and you hate what he hates. And then finally, of course, we need to go to Jesus for cleansing. Look at chapter 5, verse 21. For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. You cannot hide anything from the Lord. He sees it all, every thought, every sexual sin. And you remember King David and Bathsheba again in Old Testament. He was on the roof and she was in the pool and uh, nobody was around and uh, nobody knew about it and they thought they got away with it. But 18 months later, of course, God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David about his sin. And remember what David said? He says, I have done evil in your sight. God sees it all. He sees everything you do and he will bring it all to account. What are we going to do about that? We've all got things in our lives we want nobody to know, and especially in this area of sexuality. None of us can look back on our lives and not feel some shame. Turn with me to Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. There is a way to have a clean conscience. There is a way to stand justified before God, just as if I'd never sinned. As if I'd never watched that stuff or entered that relationship. To stand on that day innocent and pure and fully accepted by God. And what does the word of God say? It says in 1 John 1, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so stop trying to hide your sin. Stop comparing yourself to others. I'm not as bad as that. Stop hoping that in the end it'll be okay. Because it won't be unless you go to Jesus and confess your sin and ask him to forgive you and wash you clean. There's an answer and there's great hope in the gospel. His blood cleanses us. His blood shed on a cross cleanses us from all our sins. Aren't they the most wonderful words you've ever heard? In Christ we can have a new beginning. His blood cleanses us from all our sins. Human love and sexuality is a powerful thing and it points us to a far greater love, the all-powerful love of Christ. And as I finish, I want to ask you this question. Do you know the power of Christ's love? If you do, you need to know this. You, you might feel unattractive and, un, and unlovely and be conscious of past sins and hurts and scars, 
but know this, you're forgiven. You can't be any more loved than you are now. You need to see yourself as he sees you, spotless and blameless and holy. That's amazing, I know, but it's how he sees you. That's how he loves you. And if you don't know his love like that, and you've not yet understood the gospel, you don't really know who Jesus is and why he came. And you might be confused by some of the ideas that are sort of circulating in our culture and and celebrated as sort of liberating, but are in reality actually destructive to human flourishing and family life. The idea that, for example, sexual fulfillment is fundamental and essential to true human happiness. The idea that sexual rules are to be rejected if we're to be truly free as human beings. The idea that what we feel and what we intuit is what we are, also called expressive individualism. Or the idea that gender is determined by the will, not by the physical body. And you may even have been living by some of those values. And yet there's an emptiness in your life. You know what that is? That is God in your life, inviting you to consider Christ. As Guy Mason said to David Koch in his interview on Sunrise, Jesus is all about life and love. And he offers us life to the full through his loving sacrifice on the cross. And no matter how empty or confused you are, your life can be redeemed and restored through faith in him. Won't you look into it? Come and join us at the next Explore course, which is a few weeks' time. We'd love to take you through that. Don't leave it. Find out about the power of Christ's love to wash away your sin and make you whiter than snow, make you live again. He's the saviour we all need. So here's a question to think about for yourself. What changes do I need to make to honour God in my sex life? It's a very simple question. Maybe ponder that for yourselves. Changes in attitude, changes in what you watch, changes in sexual practice. Think it through, pray about it, act on it. Let's pray. And I want to pray some of the words of Psalm 51, the prayer that King David prayed when challenged with his adultery with Bathsheba. Let's pray. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Cleanse me from my sin, for my sin is always before you. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Amen.